Please be seated. Our text this morning will be Acts chapter 7, starting in verse 54. Uh, But I will tell you I'm going to start in chapter 6. I'm going to read from verse 8 forward just to give um, a reading of the context of the passage. Uh, There's a history given by Stephen in this account, and it seemed simpler to read it and then reference back to it instead of trying to fill in all that he does in a multitude of verses. So I'll read beginning in verse 8. And then we'll get to the passage that we'll actually be covering this morning, which will start in verse 54 of chapter 7. So uh, I would ask that you would get comfortable, but be alert and attent. And let's go ahead and pray, asking the Spirit for his help, and then we'll read. Almighty Father, we cannot understand your word without you. Spiritual things are discerned spiritually. We need your wisdom. We need your understanding. We need this book that you've given us, and we pray that you would help us this morning to understand this historical account of events that passed in the time of the early church. We pray that we would understand and take away from Stephen's example of the faith what the cost of faithfulness is. So we pray now that you would do for us what we cannot do on our own, which is to be wise unto your scriptures and wise in your ways. Help us to live wise unto you in Christ's name. Amen. So starting in verse 8 of chapter 6, I'll begin to read through. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians and the Alexandrians and those of Cilicia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. And they secretly instigated men who said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, This man never ceases to speak the words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. And the high priest said, Are these things so? And Stephen said, Brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran, and said to him, Go out from your land and from your kindred and go into the land that I will show you. Then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran. And after this, his father died. God removed him from there into this land in which you are now living. Yet he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot's length but promised to give it to him as a possession and to his offspring after him, although he had no child. And God spoke to this effect, that his offspring offspring would be sojourners in the land belonging to others, who would enslave them and afflict them 400 years. But I will judge the nation that they serve, said God, and after that they shall come out and worship me in this place. And he gave him the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham became the father of Isaac, And circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac became the father of Jacob, and Jacob of the twelve patriarchs. And the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt. But God was with him, and rescued him out of all his afflictions, and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of all Egypt, who made him ruler over Egypt and over all his household. Now there came a famine throughout all Egypt and Canaan, and great affliction, and our fathers could find no food. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent out our fathers on their first visit. And on the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers, and Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. And Joseph sent and summoned Jacob his father and all his kindred, 75 persons in all. 
And Jacob went down into Egypt, and he died, he and our fathers. And they were carried back to Shechem and laid in the tomb that Abraham had brought for a, bought for a sum of silver from the sons of Hamor and Shechem. But as the time of promise drew near, which God had granted to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt, until there arose over Egypt another king who did not know Joseph. He dealt shrewdly with our race and forced our fathers to expose their infants so they would not be kept alive. At this time Moses was born, and he was beautiful in God's sight, and he was brought up for three months in his father's house. And when he was exposed, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as her own son. And Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in his words and deeds. When he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them being wrong, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. And on the following day, he appeared to them as they were quarreling and tried to reconcile them, saying, Men, you are brothers. Why do you do wrong to each other? But the man who was wronging his neighbor thrust him aside, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptians yesterday? As this, at this retort, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. Now when forty years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai, in a flame of fire in a bush. When Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight, and he drew near to look. There came the voice of the Lord, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob. And Moses trembled and did not dare to look. Then the Lord said to him, Take off the sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and I have heard their groaning, and I have come down to deliver them. And now come, I will send you to Egypt. This Moses, whom they rejected, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge? This man God sent as a, both a ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. This man led them out, performing wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai. And with our fathers, he received living oracles to give to us. Our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside. And in their hearts, they turned to Egypt, saying to Aaron, Make for us gods who will go before us. And, for this, and as for this Moses who led us out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And they made a calf in those days and offered a sacrifice to the idol and were rejoicing in the works of their hands. But God turned away and gave them over to, the worship, the, to worship the host of heaven, as it is written in the book of the prophets. Did you bring me the slain beast and sacrifices during the forty years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You took up the tent of Moloch and the star of your god, Rapan. The images that you made to worship, I will send you into exile beyond Babylon." Our fathers had the tent in the wilderness, the tent of witness in the wilderness, just as uh, he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it, according to the pattern that he had seen. Our fathers in turn brought it in with Joshua when they dispossessed the nations that God drove out before the fathers. So it was until the days of David, who found favor in the sight of God and asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands. As the prophet says, Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? 
Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all of these things? And this is where we begin to enter the passage we'll be studying this morning. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and, in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Now when they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and they stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Thank you for your patience as I read that, but the last time I got to preach and open the word to you, we studied the beginning of the book of chapter 6, and we saw that Stephen was selected as one of seven. We saw that he was in Jerusalem, and a complaint arose by the Hellenists against the Hebrew Jews. And what happened was the Hebraic Jews were uh, essentially being favored as the widows of that group of people were receiving benefits before the, the widows of the Hellenistic Jews, the Greek-speaking Jews. And so the solution of the apostles to this problem was to select seven men, and there were qualifications for these men. And one of the qualifications for these men was that they'd be full of the Holy Spirit. And among those seven men that were selected, the men of good repute, men of wisdom, men full of good works and of the Spirit was Stephen. And we could say that this uh, two-chapter section really is an opening of what we could call Stephen's story. And it highlights things that we can learn about what it means to serve in the church, grow in the church, grow in the faith. And so as we look this morning, we have a lot to learn from the life of Stephen and the cost that he paid because of the cost that was paid for him. And so what I want you to see here is that we see that they were in Jerusalem and Stephen, uh, even though he was selected to essentially wait tables to make sure that food was distributed to widows and his service so that the apostles could go and preach the word. So the proclaiming of the gospel could go forth. So the foundation of the church could be established in the apostles as granted by Christ. That as this was happening, Stephen gave them more than they bargained for. They thought that they were going to get someone who was just going to serve as a deacon, who was going to open the church and wait on tables and oversee resources, be a steward within the church at the practical level. But Stephen, full of the Spirit, was doing signs and wonders. And what we have here is a parallel to what happened with Christ whenever he was brought before the council, brought before the Pharisees, brought before the high priest in Jerusalem as he's being tried before he goes to the cross. You see, the things that were brought against Christ, the reason that the Jews claimed they could put him to the cross was because of the rules of the law of the Old Testament, the rules of the law of Moses. And they believed that, and they were arguing that Jesus was speaking against the law of Moses because to speak against the law of Moses was to speak against God's law. To speak against the temple order was to speak against God's temple order. To speak against the institution of sacrifices for the remission of sins was to speak against what God had put in place. And the Jews were saying this, and the high priest was saying this, and the council was saying this and arguing this, because it was their system of how they viewed that they were right with God. They did not understand that Jesus had progressively advanced the kingdom of God, that he did believe and affirm the sacrificial system, but he was the sacrifice, that he was the atonement, that he was the final stroke that needed to be completed in that system. 
So we could be in the era that we live in now, this uh, inter-advent period between the first coming and the second coming of Christ. And as we look at this, you'll see that their accusation against Stephen were the very accusations they made against Jesus. Look in chapter 6, verse 11. It said, as they were speaking of Stephen, that he blasphemed Moses and God. Well, how did he blaspheme Moses? He was talking about the, the uh, putting away of the temple system and living the light of the once-for-all sacrifice of Christ. And the Jews hated this, and the high priest hated this. It was going to undo their power. It was going to undo uh, the works that they thought that they lived by. It was going to undo all that they knew and all that they had lived to understand about the God of the Old Testament. And in verse 14 of chapter 6, it says that this Jesus of Nazareth, uh, he spoke about destroying the temple. Now remember, the temple was the center of the Jewish faith. Uh, You think about the history of the Old Testament. And that's what Stephen points to. That's what he alludes to. He speaks about this Old, te- old uh, Testament temple system. And Stephen has to try and explain to them that Jesus is greater than the temple, that the indwelling of the Spirit is the temple itself within each of us, connecting and unifying the body of believers. And then in verse 13, you'll see that false witnesses were brought. In chapter 6, verse 13, it says that many false uh, witnesses came forward. Just as many false witnesses had come forward against Jesus, just as there was a, you could call a kangaroo court against Jesus to ensure that he would be put to death because they didn't want to see change happen, because they didn't want to adopt and submit, be adopted by Christ, submit to Christ, admit that they needed to repent to God and accept the Savior that he had provided. And so it's in light of this context, it's in light of this history that we find Stephen giving this account of the history of the Old Testament in chapter 6 leading into our passage. And this is what I want you to see this morning, that every Christian has to pay the cost of faithfulness. Every Christian must be faithful in his walk. Not perfectly faithful, but he must be willing to be faithful. He must desire to be faithful. It's good to be faithful unto the Lord in our Christian life. But to be faithful, to pay the cost of faithfulness in the Christian life, demands that you know the scriptures. It demands that we know our Bible, Old Testament and New Testament. It demands that we know the Spirit, that we're known by the Spirit, that we belong to the Spirit. And it demands that we know the Savior. And this is what you see lived out by Stephen as we see him displaying a witness and a testimony before this court that he's brought before and ultimately put to death by. So let's look first. Let me ask you, in knowing the scriptures to live a faithful life, to pay the cost of faithfulness, does Stephen know the scriptures? Absolutely. But what were his scriptures of his day? They were the Old Testament, and then they would have become, eventually, the teaching and the writing of the apostles that we now have in the New Testament. And you'll see that Stephen knows his Bible as he recounts the history of the Old Testament. And the reason he does this is because he understands there's a difference between knowing truth and being able to apply it. The reason he goes back to the Old Testament, the reason that he goes and he speaks of Abraham and he speaks of Joseph and he speaks of Moses and he speaks of David and he speaks of Solomon is because understanding them helps us live the Christian life, helps us appreciate and praise Christ. It's like this. There's a difference between knowing what a car is and knowing how to drive it. Knowing what a car is is informative, but knowing how to drive it actually provides the benefit of helping you drive to go and get your groceries instead of walk to get them, helping you drop your kids off at school instead of having to walk with them to school. The benefit is actually knowing and how to apply that which you know. And we see him doing this here. In chapter two or chapter seven, uh, verse two, he talks first of Abraham, and he says, "Well, let's consider Abraham. I'm brought before this court. Let me make a case for myself." He says, you guys know Abraham? They says, yes, the founder of our faith, Abraham. And he says, well, let's look at Abraham. Where did God dwell with Abraham? 
In verse 2, doesn't it say that God met him in Mesopotamia, met him outside of the promised land, outside of the land of Canaan, outside of Jerusalem, and certainly away from now where the temple is now established? You Jews are so fixed on where the temple is, God dwells with those that he calls. God is with his people because they will be his people and he will be their God. He says, you haven't understood that God is with his people and God is not bound by the location of the temple. You're in the old system and Christ has moved us forward. And he says, okay, but you know Abraham, so we're on the same page there. What about Joseph? You all know Joseph. That's in verse 9 of chapter 7. He says, Joseph, where did God meet him? It says that God was with him when he was in Egypt. Looking at verse 9, his brothers hated the truth that he shared with him, that he would be their rescuer, that he would be the one that they would bow before, that he would be an authority figure over his older brothers, the 12 tribes ultimately, the 12 patriarchs. They hated it. They hated it so much they left him in a pit and they were going to leave him to die. And then they decided that they were going to sell him into slavery to profit from his ill will instead. And so they sell him into Egypt, but God's providence overruled. God's providence was at work. And Joseph was the savior given by God to deliver those that rejected him. Do you see how this relates to Jesus and uh, the Jews of his day? To Jesus and the Jews of the time of Stephen's trial? And he said that Joseph was rejected, but ultimately was the form of salvation at that time. And so then he moves on to Moses. He's like, but we're really talking about Moses here. Those men proceeded in what Moses is built upon. You are saying that Jesus should have been put to death, was rightly put to death, and that I should be put to death because Jesus is greater than Moses. Jesus' system is an advancement of Moses' system. Jesus is greater than what Moses had to offer us. Jesus is the fulfillment of what Moses pointed towards. You see, the, what Stephen was speaking was really all that Christ had said. And what Stephen was saying was going to undo the Jewish system. And whenever he points this, he said, well, let's think about where Moses was. Moses was called by God in the wilderness. God said that holy ground was where the burning bush was. It was not where the temple was. So the application for us, even from that short moment of inspection, is that if I asked you, is this church holy because of the building that we built? Is it holy at all? Or is, is holiness where God dwells because God chooses to dwell, to dwell there? You see, God dwells with his people, and where he is, that is where holiness is. Where God is, that is where holiness is demanded. And this is the point that Stephen is making. But then he says, but they rejected Moses. They, they said that they didn't want Moses. They put Moses away. When Moses intervened, whenever he protected one of his own, one of his own Jews, they didn't accept him. Whenever he came back and intervened and tried to help them whenever they were arguing with each other, they denied him there as well. And that's whenever he flew into the desert, right? And they said, uh, Stephen says, God was with Moses even whenever he wasn't in the land of Canaan, even uh, the Canaan which he never actually got to enter. And the fact that you are so worried that uh, this Jesus would destroy the temple, that you have this wrong understanding of the fact he would destroy the temple, Stephen's saying it's kind of a moot point anyways because all of your founders of the faith, they weren't really as concerned with this temple as honoring God and glorifying him and being in his presence. But then he goes to David and he's like, if we haven't covered enough of the famous people of the Old Testament that you would know, how about David and Solomon? Didn't they build a temple for the Lord? Wasn't Solomon the one who completed that? And at the end of the day, what did God say? Who are you to build a temple for me? with the materials that I've given you, with the materials that I've spoken into existence, with the abilities that I've given you, and you're going to build something for me to reside within, I am God. I cannot be contained. But I will dwell with my people. 
And so as he makes this case, he's showing his knowledge of the Old Testament in a defense and understanding of who Christ is. So as far as paying the cost of faithfulness, Stephen's default is to go back to the Old Testament in the same way that Christ did. It says in Luke 24 that whenever Christ is walking with the two disciples on the Emmaus Road, he went to Moses and the songs and the prophets, and starting with Moses, he explained all the things concerning himself. He goes to the Old Testament. We need to know our Bibles. We need to study them. We need to understand them to be able to apply them, to be able to get in the car and actually drive it instead of just knowing what the car is. There's a difference between knowing that Jonah was in the belly of the whale and knowing that that signified God's wrath upon him if he wasn't willing to repent and call upon God in his need. There's a difference in understanding that Moses was a prophet and understanding that Moses pointed to Jesus, pointed forward to Jesus, was going to be fully realized in Jesus. It's in the application of the understanding of the knowledge that we really are able to live the Christian life well, to live it faithfully. And just to point to a couple other places where Stephen showed that he understood the Bible, uh, whenever we see that he quotes and says, into your hands I commit my spirit, that's from Psalm 31. But it might as well be from Luke 23, 34, where Jesus says, uh, uh, or in (laughs) Luke 23, uh, Jesus also says, forgive them, Lord, for they know not what they do. When he's on the cross and he's at the point of death. And Stephen, at his point of death, is also able to say, just like his master, just like his savior, just like the one he seeks to imitate and emulate and look to the life of and live dependent on, he looks to Christ and speaks the very words that he spoke. Our application here is that if you were to go to Ephesians 4, it would say that if you don't want to be blown about by every wind of teaching, every wind of doctrine, if you don't just want to be clinging to everything that someone who sounds smart says, if you don't just want to be switching from opinion to opinion, shifting in your stability in your life, maybe taking advantage of because you don't understand the, the fullness of the scriptures as they pertain to Christ himself, we need to get first things first, and that is understanding who Christ is in the scriptures. So sure up your faith by studying the Bible. Sure up your faith by going to Sunday school. Sure up your faith by reading your Bible in private devotion time. Sure up your faith by asking good questions and asking and asking and studying and praying. Ultimately, I'm not saying read, 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 read your Bible, but that would be good to do. I'm saying meditate and marinate and soak in the truth of the scriptures so at the day of trial, you'll be prepared to respond to it in faithfulness. But more than this, he doesn't just know the scriptures. Stephen doesn't just know the scriptures. He knows the spirit. Look at the qualification in chapter 6, verse 3. It says that Stephen had to be a man full of the spirit. But what does it mean to be full of the spirit? In John 3, when Jesus and Nicodemus are talking, Jesus is explaining the things to Nicodemus, the things of heaven. And Nicodemus is one of the wisest men of all of the Jewish system in Old Testament Israel. And Nicodemus essentially says, you know, how am, I, how, how am I supposed to get to heaven is the gist of the question. He's essentially saying, uh, you know, how does a man inter- uh, inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, a man must be born again to see the kingdom of heaven. And he says that spiritual things are understood spiritually and fleshly things are understood fleshly. And whenever he says this, he's saying that it, it has to be granted to you. How are we to understand rebirth in the spirit, this massive qualification that was required of Stephen, that he could be someone of service in the church, but also the spirit by which the Bible says that he was faithful in this moment of persecution, faithful in trial. He had to lean on the spirit. He had to be led led, led by the spirit of God. How are we to understand the spirit that he has? We're to understand rebirth this way. Let me ask you this question. Which of you chose to be born physically? Which of you decided the day that you were going to be born? 
Which of you decided or uh, called out to your parents from before your existence and said, I want to be born on this day? Let's, let's make that happen. I want to be born. Let's, let's go ahead. I, I, I am asking for it. I command it. I'm choosing it. It's ridiculous, right? None of us forced our parents to have us, to bring us into existence. You see, our life was given to us. Our physical existence was given to us, ultimately granted by God. And that's the same way, in essence, that it works with our spiritual birth. It's not something that we coercively take. It's not something that we can forcibly take, but it's something that's granted to us. So God grants the Spirit to us, grants a spiritual life by which we live, by which we're led, by which we walk in faithfulness, first unto salvation and then in faithfulness to follow. God gives us the Spirit which we're sanctified by. And then we see Stephen meeting this qualification. It says in chapter 6, verse 5, we see the qualification of the Spirit confirmed, that he was a man full of grace and of the Holy Spirit. But how did they know? How did they know that Stephen was a man full of the Holy Spirit? How would someone know that you're someone full of the Holy Spirit? If you're indwelt by the Spirit, if you belong to Christ in the Spirit, if the Spirit has captured you, and if you are someone who is professing to be a Christian and showing up on church on Sundays, and you're talking about Christ during the week, how would someone know that you have the Spirit? The Bible tells us by loving God and loving our neighbor, by demonstrating with the fruit of our lives, by visibly demonstrating and also in private, bearing witness to the fact that we belong to Christ in the Spirit. When you think about the Ten Commandments, it's broken into two pieces. It's broken into uh, our relationship to God and our relationship to man. And the, fir- the second follows the first. And the fact is that if we want to show that we belong to God in the Spirit, we... we Uh, strive towards in the spirit we're enabled to more and more over time more and more blessed by God able to uh, desire to able to keep the first four five commandments and then the uh, fifth through the tenth commandment is just an outflow of that because we love God we're now able to love our neighbors because we have the spirit uh, we have a desire to please God and a desire to love our neighbors especially within the church that's the way that someone would know that you have the Holy Spirit that you bear fruit in your day-to-day life regarding your desire and love for God and your desire and love for your brothers and sisters in Christ. It's a litmus test for each of us. Do I bear fruit in my life that demonstrates that I've been granted the Spirit? And then in verse 10 of chapter 6, we see uh, that that qualification is displayed as he's doing signs and wonders, but you should understand that signs and wonders that Stephen was doing that brought attention to him are always accompanied by the preaching of the word. And the signs and wonders that he's doing, whatever they would have been, whether they were healings or miracles, whatever they were, signs and wonders are always accompanied by the preaching and proclaiming of the gospel because the signs and wonders attest to and validate and confirm, they point to the reality of the truthfulness of the preaching and proclaiming of the truth of the one who is speaking. That's why when the prophets in the Old Testament, whenever they did miracles, when you had axe heads floating on water, whenever you had angels throwing down fire, whenever you had Moses splitting the Red Sea, when those things were happening, it was always related to the truth that was proclaimed about God, confirming the reality of the truth. When the flood came after Noah had said that the flood was going to come, it was just pointing to the fact that God's truth, that his word is real. What would have happened if all of mankind had repented at the time of the flood of Noah? As we look at this in application, I just want you to see that without the Spirit, you cannot please God. Having the Spirit is essential to being able to walk in the faith. To be able to pay the cost of faithfulness first requires that you have the Spirit. 
And this is where we really dive more particularly into the passage that we said we were going to look at. So as we come to um, verses 51 and onward into 54, uh, in verse 51, Stephen says, You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did. So do you. Do you see how essential the Spirit is to paying the cost of faithfulness, to living a life pleasing to God, to having eternal salvation? And they said, as your fathers did, so do you. If you were to go to John 8, you would hear Jesus talking about a similar topic where he's talking, about, uh, he's talking to the Pharisees and he says, you're of your father the devil and I am from God, says Jesus. And he says this, I'm going to read this portion to you. In John 8, as Jesus is speaking to the Pharisees about the fact that they're from their father the devil and they haven't received the rescuer that God has sent, Jesus says, they, uh, or the scriptures say, they answered him, the Pharisees answered Jesus, Abraham is our father. And Jesus said to the Pharisees, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You were doing the works that your father did. They said to him, we were not born of sexual immorality. We have, our, we have one father, even God. Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me, for I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father the devil, and you will do your father's will. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the word of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. And immediately after comes the passage where he says, Before Abraham was, I am, claiming deity of himself. The reason that he was taken before the council, the reason that he was tried for death, the reason that he was put to, put to the cross was because he blasphemed, claiming to be very God of very God. And then Stephen, we find him in the same situation as saying, this Jesus is very God of very God, equal in glory and power and honor and dominion, worthy of worship, worthy of being submitted to, worthy of being taken captive by, worthy of, worthy of imitating and following not just the example of, but being uh, willing to give our very life to him because of the fact that he was the only one able to pay the cost of our sin and our offense against God. But we see that it's this connecting point of Stephen having the Spirit, which enabled him to understand who Christ was. He knows the Savior. Savior. So to pay the cost of faithfulness, Stephen knows the Scriptures. He knows the Old Testament. He knows the Psalms. And he knows the scriptural truths of Jesus. And he has the Spirit. And we know that he knows the Savior. If you look at verse 55, verse 54 of chapter 7, it says that the Pharisees, uh, they ground their teeth at Stephen, and then in verse 57, they rushed together at him. They were mob-like. They were angry. They were furious. They saw him, uh, they saw Stephen speaking against everything that they had established and everything that organized the life by which they lived, and they were getting ready to put him to death. And they did this because of what he was saying about the truth of who Jesus was. The very same gospel truth that you were called to proclaim in your daily lives. Jesus is very God of very God. Jesus is the one that Moses spoke of, the one that would be greater than Moses, the one who would ultimately free slaves from captivity. This is the same truth that you're called to proclaim in your daily lives. Have you considered the risk? Are you willing to speak the truth about Christ despite the cost? And as we look in verse 55, we see that Stephen gazed into heaven. It says he gazed into heaven. You see, he was seeking a heavenly perspective 
for his earthly action. He was saying in these last moments, under the most, uh, the greatest, the weightiest persecution I've ever faced in the entirety of my life, I need to look upward. I need to look to what Christ would have me do. I need to seek the guidance of the Spirit so I might be faithful, even in this time of trial, even at this moment where I'm understanding that I might die. Stephen would have connected the dots that if he said what Jesus said about himself and Jesus was put to death, that Stephen, by the very same people, the very same high priest, might also die for saying the same things. You see, Jesus knew that he was going to die, but no one had been put to death for the exact same reasons. The prophets of the Old Testament had proclaimed truth and been put to death, but Jesus was the only one who actually claimed to be God. But now Stephen, after the fact, is looking back and saying, I saw Jesus die for that. I knew that he died for that, but I'm going to proclaim the same thing anyways. Count the cost of the faith. Consider it. Pray over it. And take the example of Stephen. Take heart in his example. And it says that he saw Jesus standing. He saw Jesus standing. Commentators say lots about this. They have different views on what it means. But at the very least, take the promise of Christ that Jesus said in different places. He said in Matthew 10 and in Luke 12 that if you stand and confess my name before men, I will stand and confess your name before the Father. Essentially, if you acknowledge me before men, if you speak about the truth of who I am before men, if you believe it, if you live in light of it, if you profess it with the way that you live and the way that you speak, then I will do the same about you on the day that you would stand before my Father. On the day when God's wrath is poured out on sinners who have not accepted Christ, Jesus will stand between you and God and say, He's mine. He is spared of this wrath. I've paid the cost of his sin. And that is the comfort that Jesus gives Stephen in this moment of trial. At the moment of death, at the moment that Stephen knows that he's taken outside of the city, at the moment that the first stone flies and hits him in the head and hits him in the body, and he knows that he's about to die, Jesus condescends and gives him a comfort and presents himself to Stephen and says, if you're going to die, take comfort in who I am. If you're about to die, look up to me. So when each of you are on your deathbed, whatever day it may be in the future, when each of you are close to the end of your days on this earth, Look to heaven. Look to the comfort of the reality of Christ, of the fact that Christ has conquered death, the fact that you belong to Christ and that he's the one who died and that he rose, and the fact that he's the one who's able to forgive sin, and the fact that he's the one who's able to pay for sin, the one who has paid for sin for you, definitely, finally, and given you the seal of the Spirit as proof of the fact that you belong to him. Because of those truths, you should be able to die in peace. Not that any one of us would look forward to dying in the future, but we know that at the day that we do, we have a greater promise in Christ than the death that would claim us in that moment. And so as you look here, I want you to see, I want you to see the fact that uh, not only does Stephen die by looking to Christ, and Christ comforts him in that moment, in that way, but in verse 59, we see Stephen quoting Christ and saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit, which is different from what Christ said. When Christ is on the cross, he says, Lord, receive my spirit. God the Father, receive my spirit. God of very God, receive my spirit. And then Stephen says something very important. He says, Lord Jesus, Master Jesus, Deity Jesus, God Jesus, receive my spirit. He's saying that Jesus is the one who is worthy and able to receive my spirit and hold it until the day of the resurrection which would have just only further infuriated, further instigated the men who were about to kill Stephen. Do you see him pouring gasoline on the fire of truth? Do you see him saying that, I'm about to die for this. I might as well proclaim Christ to the last. Christ holds my spirit. And then in verse 60, Stephen says, Lord, do not hold this sin against him. What enabled Stephen to say that? Not just the example of Christ, but what enabled Stephen to say that? You see, it, it's like this. Uh, 
I, I flew on a plane last night. I was coming home, and I'm always amazed. Uh, I don't have kids. I'm always amazed, uh, first, at the patience of the parents who have young babies, you know, and they're doing their best to keep the baby calm, and they know everyone around them is so um, tired and exhausted, especially on the late-night flights, and the children are crying on the plane, and the parents are trying to hush it for the benefit of their child and also for the benefit of everyone else on the plane. But it's always, it's always, especially the older mothers on the plane who have this compassion on the young uh, parents who are comforting this crying child. Because of what they've been through, they now have compassion on seeing others suffer. Because of what they've been through, they know how much compassion the people who are suffering and uh, who are, are in that moment of difficulty on the plane, they understand how to give that compassion because they've received compassion. Because they know that they've needed compassion in that same situation. That's true for the believer as well. Once you've received favor in Christ, once you know that you need forgiveness in Christ, you know that others do as well. What enables you to turn the other cheek? What enables you to show forgiveness to your enemies? What enables you to bless your enemies? The fact that Christ blessed you when you were an enemy. The fact that Christ forgave you whenever you needed forgiven, though it was not required of Christ to give you forgiveness, but he chose to out of his gracious mercy by the plan of redemption of God. This is the reality of the truth that we live in light of, and this is why Stephen can say, Lord, don't hold these sins against him. And maybe by that very example, Stephen would see some of the ones that he died in front of gathered together at the last day, worshiping next to them, worshiping the God who saves, the God who forgives, the God who rescues. We know at least one, Saul. Commentators speak again and again and again in the New Testament of the fact that the persecutions that unfold after the death of Stephen the spreading of the persecution of the church had a, a major impact on the thought life, the repentance, uh, the gravity of the holiness of Saul who would become uh, the Apostle Paul. And so by Stephen's witness and example in death and others like him, we see that others um, come to the faith because of the gospel proclaimed and the gospel lived out. And so just consider these things in closing. We've got a, a, just a few more points. There's a high cost of faithfulness. You have to consider the cost of faithfulness. Is faithfulness and holiness worth it? Because God demands it. God demands faithfulness. He demands holiness. It's expected in the life of the Christian, enabled by the Spirit. After you belong to Christ, he says, live a holy life. You are now able. You, kn you now have the proper fuel. You now have the proper motivation. You now have the right foundation to be able to live in a way that pleases me, though you won't do that perfectly in this life. You have to consider the cost of your salvation to consider whether that which God requires because of it is necessary. Because Christ is worthy, because Christ and his blood was uh, immeasurably valuable, holiness is worth pursuing. Faithfulness is worth living out until the end of our days as a body of believers together and also individually. But what this looks like in practice, it might mean giving up some of the busyness of your schedule. We live in Lee Summit. Many of us live in the suburbs. We live where there's activity all around. There's Legacy Soccer Complex, and there's the Overland Park Soccer Complex, and there's schools that have programs going nonstop, and uh, grandchildren are having activities, and grandparents are rushing off, and those are, those are all okay things. But do we make enough time in our schedule and enough time in our lives to pursue holiness, to pursue faithfulness, to be prepared for the day that we're tried by God? to be prepared to live well at the time that God chooses to refine us, that we would be a testament and a witness to those around us in our communities. Consider your lives and the way that you spend your time so you'll be prepared for the day of trial. But I'm not just saying just believe, just work harder, just have faith. Because you can't do that in your own strength. As we said, you need the Spirit, but 
It's okay to pray for a faith like Stephen. I mean, ultimately, you want the greatest faith that God can grant you. If God would grant you greater faith than Stephen had, I would admonish you to pray for that. That would be a wonderful thing. But we can look to the example of the saints that have gone before us, especially the martyrs, and we can seek to imitate them. Not that we seek to go and be killed for the faith, but if God calls us to that, to be as prepared for it as Stephen was. That's the example that we take away. I want you to hear from Hebrews 12. It says, uh, uh, the author of Hebrews is unknown, but he's speaking to try and keep people from going lukewarm in their faith, from turning back to the Jewish faith after they become Christians. He says, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. The very same thing that Stephen considered as he was dying is what the author of Hebrews tells us to do. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be wary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as a son. And then to paraphrase the close, discipline is for holiness. So my final question for you is this. Is Christ worth your very life? Is Christ worth your very life? What proof is there in your life today that you would exchange your life as a cost for faithfulness? What proof should there be? I read uh, some of the Voice of Martyrs articles yesterday as I was traveling, and it's hard to read about three of them before you start to tear up. You realize that there are Christians all over the world being persecuted. I came from a, a Christian conference that happened on Friday, and one of the men from the ministry was coming back from East Africa, and villagers were coming from one of the most highly persecuted places in all of Africa where, where Christians are persecuted. And they risk life and death to travel, to go pick up Bibles and take Bibles back to their villages so men and women might have the word of God so that they can know the scriptures, so they can have the spirit, so they can live a faithful life and belong to God until the day that they die. We are brothers and sisters all across the globe in that situation. The short time that we have and what's most valuable to, uh, to you in this life is going to be on display for all to see. Everything will be brought into the light in very short time. There will be no hiding from the truth there will be no hiding from the light that reveals what you live for in this age. So, as we look here, it's by Christ alone that you enter heaven. It's by no other way. And if you're without Christ, you have a predicament. You're in a difficult situation because if you're apart from Christ, even though you may be in good company of others who are apart from Christ up until the day that you die, when you die, you're going to stand before God alone, and Christ will not be there to stand before you. It will, it will be too late. So I plead with you now, repent, serve Christ, belong to him, and pay, be willing to pay the cost of faithfulness to give, cost of faithfulness to give your life to him. Um, I'll finish with a quote from Revelation, and then we'll pray. In Revelation 6, 9, it says, When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign God, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on earth? Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer 
until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete, who were to be killed as they themselves had been. So therefore, be wise and serve the Lord with fear and with trembling and praise until Christ returns. Please pray with me. Almighty Father, we pray that you would help us to be sober-minded to the reality of the coming judgment. We pray that you would help us to be sober-minded about uh, all that you've given us in the Spirit, that we are now enabled to live in a faithful way, a holy way. We thank you for the example of those martyrs like Stephen and others. We thank you ultimately for not just the example of Christ, but his very life, his very sacrifice once for all. We pray that we would take this into account as we continue to live unto Christ, as we continue to live as a body of believers. We pray that you would bless us in the Spirit and bless us in wisdom and understanding and application of the Scriptures so we might honor you with the remainder of our lives. Please be with each of these here in this congregation and those joining online that we might live in a way pleasing to you. And in our day of death, that we would be comforted knowing that Christ stands for us because he's enabled us to stand for him in this life. All in Christ's name, amen.